0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Thank you, guys. It's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Um, it's so encouraging to hear Biju's story, and I'm always thankful to hear the way our God works miracles around the world. So, um, But Pastor uh, Jonathan told me that uh, if I'm not on time today, I'm going to create a parking jam. So um, I'm going to just go. We're just going to go right? Like, let's just, I'm long-winded as it is. So um, Dr. Uh, Peter Gray is a research professor uh, at Boston College, and he uh, is a very strong advocate for what he calls trustful parenting. He's written a book out about it. He's a kind of leading expert in his field. He's actually written a well-known textbook on psychology and Uh, Several years ago, he started to notice a trend in parenting uh, that he labeled as fear-based parenting. And so he's kind of written in response uh, to that, and Dr. Gray highlights that uh, one of the things he's noticed is that um, a lot of parents, when it comes to their kids, tend to kind of operate in their parenting style based out of fear. And he kind of talks about how fear-based parenting actually can come in various shades. Actually, in an article for Psychology Today, he highlights kind of four types of fear-based parenting. Maybe, maybe you've heard some of these terms before. One of the types of fear-based parenting he talks about is the helicopter parent, the parent who's always hovering around their kid, seeking to intervene anytime any sort of trouble seems to creep up. Uh, Another type of fear-based parenting he highlights is what he calls the snowplow parent. They're the parent that tries to level out any obstacle that's in front of their kid. If I can take it out and smooth the way I Will, a third type of parenting, a fear-based parenting he calls the fuel injector parent. This is the parent that feels like their kids need a certain set of skills to navigate the world. And so they try to inject those skills, often trying to make their kids to be hyper competitive or control certain attributes of them so that they'll be ready to navigate the world. Kind of his pinnacle example of that he uses is called the tiger parent who literally seeks to control every aspect of their child's life so that they can be Successful. The last type of fear-based parenting he talks about is the defensive parent, which is the parent that operates in their parenting style out of fear of other people's perception of their parenting. So they're constantly shifting in relationship to what culture or friends or people think of how their kid acts or responds. What Gray highlights out of all those types of parents um, is that the root issue underneath all of those approaches is the issue of fear, But what he goes on to highlight is that actually the very thing that these parents seek to produce in their kids, because it's operated out of fear, often produces the opposite. In fact, research has shown that parents who take a fear-based approach to parenting often do not produce children who are emotionally equipped to handle the challenges of real life. And so Gray goes on to argue that what really needs to take place is what he calls trustful parenting. Now, I bring this up to you not to have a conversation about parenting today, that's a whole nother sermon for another day, but only to highlight that oftentimes one of the things that can have profound influence on the reality of our families is fear and trust. Fear impacts families. In fact, it can play a powerful role in the way that parents relate to kids, the way kids relate to parents, the way siblings relate to one another. It can influence the whole culture of a family. It can influence even how we relate to relationships outside of our family and even how we relate to God. I imagine that if you paused for a moment and thought about your family, it wouldn't be long before you could identify some fear that existed within the culture of your family that impacted your relationships. Fear affects all families and all people in one way or another. We're in the middle of this series that we've been calling Family Why Bother, where we've been looking at the first book in our Bible and looking at some of the first families in that book to kind of understand God's purpose for family, but even more, how we can navigate the challenges of family. Family presents challenges for all of us. We all come from a family. We all navigate family all the time. And what we want to look at are what are the things that impact families and how can we learn from God's word to navigate those realities in our own life? Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of the moments in the first family of faith where fear played a really significant role. And through this story, We're going to look at the impact that fear can have on our lives, but also we're going to discover, I think, a truth that will help us navigate the reality of how fear can impact families. So with that said, we're in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 10, and I'm just going to kind of read through and kind of unpack some things as we go and then draw our attention to some implications out of that. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now... There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. So at this point, the question you're asking is, who's Abram? Because if you've been following this series at all, you know we just took a massive jump in our study of Genesis. We spent the last several weeks looking at the first four chapters, and now suddenly we're in chapter 12. So let me give you a quick recap of what happened, just so you can follow the flow of the story. God creates the world. He creates it good. He creates human beings as its image bearers, as the pinnacle of his creation, to represent him and to rule over his creation on his behalf. Humanity turns from that purpose, rebels against God, desires instead to rule of their own accord, not under. God. And because of that, the whole world falls into sin and brokenness and rebellion. Human beings experience shame, which begin to impact and affect their relationships. So they experience a brokenness with God and with one another and with the world around them. Sin gets worse and worse and worse. We saw this last week when we looked at the first murder, but it actually gets worse from there. So much so that God decides to restart the whole project So he brings judgment against the evil of the world through a flood and he takes one man to kind of restart the human project, Noah. The problem is Noah's still plagued by sin. And so even after God restarts the whole thing, Noah and his family still fall into sin and it gets worse and worse and worse until humanity joins together to build a tower to come against God. Well, God can't have that. So he comes against the tower, splits humanity's languages. This is Genesis 11 and spreads them across the earth. God then in Genesis 12 decides he's going to restart his plan of redemption because at the very beginning, he promised that he was going to do something about the sin and evil that plagued his world. So God decides that he's going to pick one guy and he's going to start a plan ultimately to redeem his world. And this is how he begins it in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. So actually go back to verse 1 with me for a second. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. So God chooses this guy, right? He has a family. We see that record, but there there is nothing in the text that shows us why God chose Abraham other than he just chose him as the guy that he's gonna start his project for. And as he does, he brings this promise. Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So very simple. God comes to Abraham. He says, you're going to go from this country. I'm going to show you a country. And I'm going to give you that land. And then I'm going to form you into a great nation, which means you're going to have descendants that are going to populate and grow into a nation. And through you, I'm going to watch over them, bless and protect. And through you, I'm going to bring blessing to the entire earth, right? This is God's promise to Abraham. So all he tells is Abraham to go, and God will do this for him. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now the next several verses then highlight Abraham going to the land that God had called him to. So that's the context then that our story is going to come out of. Now verse 10 again, there was a famine in the land. So right away in our story, Abraham encounters a problem in the place that God had sent him. God sent him to a new land, and in this land, there's a famine, which means there's not enough water to provide the resources of food that are necessary to care for Abraham's family. So let me um, stop and make a quick point. His name is Abram. Later, God changes his name to Abraham. It's the same person. I cannot break that connection in my head. So I might say Abram, and I might say Abraham. I'm talking about the same guy. You just got, I've tried all week to like Abram, 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 but sometimes it just comes out as Abraham. Same thing with Sarah and Sarah. So so just know that I'm talking about the same guy, okay? So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Now, why does Abraham go to Egypt, okay? He's a keeper of the cattle or sheep or cows. So in Abraham's day, you essentially had two jobs. You either kept the flocks, the cattle, or you farmed the land. If you kept cattle or uh, flocks, you would go out, you would feed them, graze them in the hills outside, and then at some point, you would take your flocks to a nearby city, and you would trade with the farmers in that city so that your family could have the food and resources necessary to survive. Now, if a famine comes, and those farmers don't have the food to trade you with, then you've got to find a land that you can trade your sheep to get food. Now, you're going to then look for a land that isn't ultimately supplied in its farming by rain, but has a water source that can provide for them in types of drought. Well, that place, the closest place for Abram is Egypt, which is supplied by the Nile. So the famine moves him in that direction so he can trade and provide the resources for his family. So there's one problem. The famine moves him to Egypt. But a second problem then arises in the text. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, There seems to be some tension that Abraham feels that because of the attractiveness of his wife, when he enters this land, they're going to know it's his wife and they're going to kill him so that they can take her from him. And this creates fear for Abraham. He can't carry on what God's promise is and God's plan for him if he's dead. So there's this level, this root fear that he has. So in verse 13, then this is his response to that fear. Say, you are my sister. That it may well well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So, what's Abraham's response to the fear that he has of what will take place to him? Well, it's to come up with a lie, or maybe a half truth. We find out later that Sarah actually is his half sister. She's the daughter of his father, but not his mother. And it would have been common in Abraham's day for people to marry within their extended family in order to protect their resources and their livelihood within the family unit. That's different than our day. We don't operate that way, but that that wouldn't have been abnormal for them. So she is technically his half sister, but he's gonna de-emphasize that point because he wants to protect himself, right? His whole point is do this so it will go well with me so that I will be okay. Not only that, in doing so, it also actually puts him in the position of power as her brother in the relationship. So Abraham responds to the problem of the famine, but ultimately the problem of his fear by enacting a lie in order to protect himself. Now, how does that go for Abram? Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkey, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Here we come to the real problem within the story. Because Abraham operates out of fear, Because he concocts this lie to say that this is his sister, not his wife, his wife ultimately gets trafficked out of his household into Pharaoh's harem. It would have been common practice in those days for powerful kings to have what's known as a harem, a group of women who were his wives who were there to serve the king for his pleasure. I know that's icky, right? I feel icky about it too. That was how things had operated in positions of power. It still operates like that in positions of power today, but that's another sermon for another time. But the problem is Sarah, who's Abraham's wife and the one to whom the promise of descendants should also come through, has now been trafficked out of his home and essentially negotiated by Abraham out of self-protection to be married to Pharaoh. And she's brought into Pharaoh's home, which presents a massive potential problem in the story and the promise of God. Because if Sarai is married to Pharaoh and they ultimately conceive a child, we have a major problem in regards to Abraham's descendants and what God said he was going to do through him. And so in the first half of this story, what we see is that Abram, out of his fear... And out of the trouble that he experiences, and out of his response of that fear, puts his wife and his future family in a horrific, horrific situation. And I think this is an important point that I want to draw our attention to from the text for us today. And I'd simply put it this way. Our households face serious trouble when we fail to trust God's promises. When you and I operate out of fear and not faith in God, right? Because Abraham could have responded in faith. He could have said, God promised to bless those that bless me. And he promised to curse those that come against me. So therefore, I'm going to be honest. This is my wife. Bring your worst. God's got my back. But that's not what he does. He operates out of fear. And because he operates out of fear, it ultimately leads his fear to be realized in that his wife is taken from him and brought into Pharaoh's household. Fear can cause us to place our relationships, not only ourselves, but our relationships at risk and our families when we fail to trust. Because that failure to trust, that fear creates responses in us that actually then can create harm to those around us. Note just some of Abraham's responses that come out of his fear right? One of his responses out of his fear is to control the situation. Instead of trusting God to control the situation, Abraham seeks to control the situation. Let's do this in response because this might happen to me. That's what happens. All fear is a fear of control, of us not being in control of the circumstances of our life. And so what happens when we operate out of fear is we try to grab control. I'll dictate things on my terms, right? I'll take matters into my own hands, The second thing he does out of that fear is he deceives. He's less than honest. He operates in a way that does not bring the truth to the forefront. No, put exposure of himself in that place because he's afraid of the consequences of what will happen if he does that. So he's less than honest or he's deceptive. Not only that, out of his fear, he operates in self-preservation. He's willing to put others, even within his own family, at risk in order to protect himself. So fear has all these tentacles out of it that impact our relationships and that ultimately cause harm. But the root of all those activities that actually put Sarai in the place of risk in the situation and potential harm are rooted in the fear that Abraham has. You see, fear causes Abraham to flip reality and begin to believe that God isn't capable of actually protecting him. That's what fear always does. Dan Allender, a Christian psychologist and Tremper Longman, an Old Testament professor, wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul, where they unpack various realities of our emotions one of the things that they talk about in that book is the reality of fear. This is what they say, and I think it's an important reminder of what fear does. They say, fear distorts our perception of ourselves so that we seem weaker than we really are. It distorts the size of our problems so that they seem huge and undefeatable. But perhaps, most significantly, fear distorts our picture of God. God seems weak, uninvolved, or uncaring in the midst of our troubles. After all, we think if he were strong and concerned, he would not leave us in this mess. Fear reverses reality by making evil seem all-conquering and God impotent. See, that's Abraham's problem. He doesn't think God's powerful enough or he's lost that trust in the moment. He's bought into fear and therefore he's got to take control. But when that happens, it begins to create harmful effects and puts the flourishing of his family at risk. That's always what fear does when it operates within our lives, and our relationships. It causes us out of control, out of deception, out of all sorts of things to put our family and our relationships at risk around us. I'll give you two, two examples of this. One fictional, one real. How many of you have seen the movie Encanto? Show of hands. Most of you, most parents in the room, right? Some of you haven't. If you haven't, I would encourage you actually to watch it. It's a really interesting exploration of the reality of family. I'm not saying the message is of how it all gets resolved is great, but it's got some interesting dynamics for dialogue. Um, so in that movie, we get a ex- great picture of what happens when someone operates their family out of fear. So if you don't know the storyline, the magical family when, uh, is ultimately in their origins thrust from their, land, from their town because of political unrest. On their way to their new land where they're being pursued and attacked, the grandfather, the patriarch of the family, ultimately um, ends up dying and sacrificing his life. And because of that, the magical family receives a miracle where they receive these magical powers that then they're meant to use to bless other people around them. The grandmother, though, in the story, who survives out of that traumatic experience, begins to really live in relationship to her family in elements of fear. Because she lost her husband, she doesn't want to lose her kids. And so she begins to control and manipulate the family in a way to kind of self-protect them from anything that would be a threat to her family. And in the end of the day, this causes her all sorts of problems, both in the way her kids are, the way she relates to them, the way she relates to her grandkids. In the movie, she creates fear within her own children of her because of her fear of what could happen. And you see the dynamics of the way they relate. She rejects any challenge to the aspects of her life, even at one point, forcing her and shutting down her granddaughter who's trying to bring her attention that there might actually be trouble in the family because she's so afraid. It's an interesting picture. When family is rooted in fear, what happens is it naturally affects our relationships. It naturally does not move them towards health and flourishing. It puts them in a place where there's all these realities of harm where relationships don't flourish in the way God intended, where families don't flourish in the way God intended. Abraham obviously takes it to the extreme where he puts his wife literally in harm's way out of his fear, but we do it in lots of subtle ways as well. So one personal example. Last year, um, my wife and I um, needed to uh, do some marriage counseling. So um, pastors aren't perfect, right? We got to f- figure some stuff out too. And kind of coming out of COVID and, and some moving to Michigan, um, not that it was Michigan's fault. Um, we realized, I mean, as an Ohio boy, that's an easy joke, but I'm not, not going to go there. Um, but we realized there were some things we needed to, to work on and address, right? And so we started to meet with the counselor. And through that experience, one of the things that I realized about myself is that I have a a real struggle of a fear of people. Uh, So uh, I really fear conflict with people, and I really fear disappointing people. If there's any other Enneagram 9s in the room, you can say amen with me, right? That's that's my natural bent. So the problem was, because I have that fear, when it came to my opinions, when it came to my feelings— when it came to who I was, oftentimes in my relationship with my wife, I would be less than forthright or less than honest about what I thought or what I felt because I was afraid it would create conflict in the relationship. So I, I'd be honest to a point, but as soon as conflict might enter the picture, I'd withdraw. I'd pull back. And what I began to understand through just my time of counseling and the wisdom of another is that actually that was undermining the very relationship that I desired to have with my wife. That if I wanted to have a trustful, vulnerable, intimate relationship, then if I was unwilling to bring the fullness of who I was, always holding things back out of fear, I couldn't build that relationship. And I recognized that fear had actually caused me to harm the relationship with the person I love most in this world after Jesus. You see, fear has these little effects, these these subtle ways it influences and damages our relationship. When we operate out of fear, it causes problems in our families. And that's the thing that happens with Abraham. His fear causes him to put his relationship at risk. And it causes harm. And the same thing's true of us, right? When we fear, when fear becomes a root reality, we'll operate out of trying to control people instead of loving them and trusting God. We'll subtly be less than honest. I mean, how many of us have family secrets? We don't talk about that. We're not honest about that. And we never experience healing in that area because we're afraid to even have the conversation. Or we, we self-preserve. We manipulate situations in our lives and our families in order to protect ourselves, not in having our vulnerability or our shame, our nakedness, to use the term from Genesis 2, Exposed. You see, the reality is all of us have core fears. And when we operate out of those core fears, it inflicts damage. Abraham's fear of his wife is one of his core fears. You actually see later, he repeats the same cycle just several chapters later in his life. And what you hear him say, not for time's sake, just trust me, but you can go look this up. What you hear him say is that from the moment he left his land, he purposed with his wife to tell them the lie that she was his sister. Even before he went to Egypt, it was a core fear that was exposed in just leaving. And he had already purposed, this is the way I'm gonna handle it. And twice in his life, he puts his wife's honor, his wife's dignity on the line because he's unwilling to deal with the core fear that God will protect him. Many of us have unfortunately experienced the same reality. And we've even lived out this reality in the families we've come from and the families that we're creating. So the question then is, what breaks this? Like what helps us navigate the reality of our core fears and allow it to move from a place where fear destroys or harms our relationship to a place where we can actually experience flourishing in our relationships? Well, I think the text points us to what the answer is, but I'm going to give you a warning. It's probably not what you initially think. So let's go back to Genesis 12. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she is your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. So, The problem is Sarai's in Pharaoh's home. This puts the family of God at risk. God now comes and intervenes and begins to bring plagues or diseases against Pharaoh because essentially he's taken the promised one's wife into his home and marries her. Pharaoh somehow perceives or discerns that this is what is happening, that this isn't actually Abram's sister and that because of that, he's experiencing this reality. And so Pharaoh puts Abram on blast. Right, he comes to him and is like, "Dude, why did you lie to me? Why do I have to experience all of this because you weren't honest?" No, when we operate out of fear, it not only harms our family, it often harms people outside of our families as well. So Pharaoh experiences this because of Abram's deception. And he comes and challenges Abram and essentially says, "Fine, take your wife, take your things, go." Verse 30, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. So that's the end of the story. He went down to Egypt to start the story. He goes up and you just have this bizarre, though in the text, it's this bizarre story. You're like, God calls Abram. Hey, go to this place. There's a famine. He goes into Egypt. He lies about his wife, but somehow in lying about his wife, he actually receives all this blessing of extra cattle and servants and all of this, and then he leaves with more than he has. God never challenges Abraham. Only Pharaoh comes and essentially says, why did you lie to me? Pharaoh's the one that experiences the consequences of Abraham's actions, and then he just leaves. And you're like, what's the, what's the moral lesson of this story? What's even more amazing is when you consider the story in light of everything that's happened up to this point in Genesis. When you read through the story of Genesis, what you see time and time again is that everyone who acted deceptively, unrighteously, unfaithfully has brought serious consequences upon themselves. But why does Abraham do the same thing, but doesn't experience those same consequences? Here's the answer. It's found in the first three verses of Genesis. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So in Genesis chapter 12, God enters into a relationship with Abram. He calls Abram to go. That's Abram's part of the job. That's the step of faith that he calls Abram to take. And Abraham does that, right? Verse four, Abraham went as the Lord had shown him. We see that that's Abraham acting in faith towards God. In fact, Hebrews eleven eight eight reminds us by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham is called to go by faith and follow God. What has God then promised to Abraham? I will take care of you. I will bless you. I will protect you. In the very next story, we see God doing that. That because God had entered into a covenant relationship with Abram, God would be faithful to him, even when he was fearful with God. That's the point of the story. That God is going to be faithful to his people, despite their failure, because he's promised to do so. The whole story is meant to remind you that if you've put your faith in God and entered into a relationship with him, that God is faithful even when you are fearful. Relationship is the starting point for that. Don't miss that. Abraham operates in faith in relationship to God. For you and I, it's the same thing. God is faithful to us as we enter into relationship with him to put our faith in Jesus, that he has died for our sins, that he has in fact risen from the dead and is Lord over all is to enter into a covenant, a new covenant relationship with God. That's always the starting point. That's why I implore you, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, start there. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, then the reminder of what shifts the dynamic of fear that plagues our hearts and plagues our families is, uh, is God's faithfulness not simply our perfect obedience. Maybe you could say it this way. Our households receive serious blessing when we remember God's faithfulness. You see, the antidote to fear is faith. But faith comes by remembering the faithfulness of God. That's the starting point. The antidote to our fear is not us somehow trying to work up faith and getting it perfect, and then maybe things will be okay. See, the hope of the passage is that Abraham was a mess and God was still faithful. Therefore, we can still trust that God will be faithful to us even when we're a mess. And if we get that point and start there, that will work to alleviate fear from our hearts that moves us into flourishing. You see, I think often what we hear taught to us is this idea that the way in which we overcome fear in our life is just to muster up more faith. So you have something that causes anxiety or fear in your life. You have some core root fear down in your heart that you're afraid of or concerned about that affects your relationships around you. Maybe the way you parent, maybe the way you relate to your spouse, maybe the way you relate to your parent. I don't know what it is. You have that core thing. Oftentimes what we hear is the antidote, the way I deal with that is I've got to find some strength in me to get more faith. I just got to trust God more. I got I got to try more. I got to work harder. I got to be more obedient. Do more. Figure it out. And if I trust God more, then finally maybe I won't be so afraid of that thing. But the problem is, then when that fear creeps back up, when it blindsides us one morning when we just wake up out of bed and suddenly we feel that call back to that place of fear, we feel like failures. And at that point, we feel hopeless. And it begins a cycle that continues us in a place where we don't actually begin to overcome our fear. We're just stuck trying to hide it or deal with it or control it enough. But the antidote to fear is not trying to muster up more faith. The antidote is to go back and remember who your faith is. Is in. So, when um, my kid comes to me at night because he's scared of the dark, parents, you know this experience, right? The first thing I have to do is center myself because getting woken up in the middle of the night brings an anger in my soul like very few things. But when my kid comes to me at night and he's scared because of the unknown, I heard a noise, there's some fear in his heart. You know what I don't tell my kid? Hey, just uh, go back to bed and try a little bit harder not to be afraid. Just just work at it. Maybe if you keep trying, you'll get it. No, like, that never works. You know that, parents. What do you say? Hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. I'm right here. And because I'm right here, you don't have to be afraid. Because if something came into this house, trust me, I'd move heaven and earth to make sure I encountered that thing before you ever encountered it. And my job is to watch over you, and you can trust me. See, what alleviates fear is not just trying to figure out more faith or a way to not have fear. What alleviates fear is reminding my son about the reality of the relationship he has with me and who I am. And it's the same for us. That's why the psalmist would say in Psalm 23... Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You see, what alleviates our fear is a reminder that when we've entered into a relationship with God, he's with us. We're not alone. And when we draw our mind and attention back there, it alleviates the realities, it begins to alleviate the realities of our fear within to remember that we've entered into a perfect covenant loving relationship with God by Jesus begins to eradicate the fears and core fears that plague our soul and affects our relationships. The apostle John would put it this way in his first letter. There is no fear in love. Why? How can there be no fear in love? How can that be a reality? Because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. What casts out fear? What begins to eradicate fear in your life? God's perfect love. Not your perfect obedience. Now, obedience is important, but it's not your perfection that earns the reality of overcoming fear. It's his perfect love over you. It's being reminded that you're in a covenant relationship with Jesus, therefore, God loves you, and that love begins to eradicate the core fears of our hearts. God is not a fear based parent. Hear that again God is not a fear based parent, God does not fret over your failure. God does not sit up in heaven, wringing his hands, going, oh my goodness, I can't believe that she just made that mistake. Oh oh my gosh, I can't believe Abram just sold his wife into Pharaoh's household. What am I going to do now? That's not how God operates. He's not afraid of your failure. He already knew you failed. That's why from the beginning, Before the foundations of the world, he purposed to send his son to die to cover your failure so that you wouldn't have to be afraid of the ultimate consequences of your sin, meaning separation from God, but you could know his love now that carries you into a perfect eternity forever. So if God knew your failure from the beginning, he's not fretting over your mistake. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid that somehow when you face the challenges of life that God's going to give up on you. He will watch over you and protect you and in Christ carry you forth if you put your faith in him into eternity. So when we are afraid, where do we draw our minds? Is it mustering up faith? No, it's remembering the faithfulness of our God. And what, what brings that to our attention more? the cross of Christ. I mean, that's why Paul says in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What should we be afraid of? Who should we be afraid of? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? To remember God's faithfulness to us ultimately pictured in the sacrifice of his son on the cross allows us to live and begin to live free of fear. It allows us to live in a way that brings blessing to our lives and to our families. When we root ourselves in the truth of God's faithfulness, It allows us to not have to feel the pressure to control our lives because we know he's in control of our lives and he will work for the goodness of his people. It allows us to move from a place of deception to honesty, free to be vulnerable with others, free to be honest about where we're at in our lives and in our relationships because we know that God has already seen our shame and he's covered over it. So we have nothing to be afraid of. No one can attack you. No one can bring something against you that God doesn't already know. And we can move from being people who self-preserve to people who self-sacrifice for the good of others. We love, and the definition of love is self-sacrifice in 1 John, because he first self-sacrificed for us. And if he would do that, we can be free. And if we live in that way, God will begin to deal with our core fears. Now, that doesn't mean it happens overnight. There's a process of sanctification. But when you're in that place of fear, what do you do? Remember God's faithfulness. That's the point of the whole story. God's gonna be faithful to Abraham even when he fears. God, if you are in Jesus this morning, will be faithful to you even when you struggle with fear because he's a faithful God. Blessing ultimately comes to Abraham at the end of the story, not because he was fearless, but because God is faithful. Blessing will come in your life, not because you are fearless, because God is faithful in Jesus Christ. So fix your eyes there. Set your hope there. And God will begin to work in your heart to overcome the fears that you face. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness to us Thank you that you saw us in our struggle, in our sin, the same way you saw this moment with Abraham. And yet you, out of your kindness and grace, loved us enough to cover our sin, to rid us of our shame, to bring us into back into relationship with you. And so God, I pray this morning for us, as we even respond to this text, I pray that you would help all of us fix our eyes, our hope, on the faithfulness that you've shown to us in Christ Jesus. I pray for any of those fears, maybe that we do have in our heart, that you would help us time and time again to go back and remember your faithfulness so that hope would arise, so that faith would arise, so that we could continue to move forward towards your purposes for us, both on this earth and in eternity. So even now as we sing, would you do that work? Would you elevate our faith in Christ as we sing and celebrate your faithfulness, I pray.